I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket at dr-gen.com. Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg is a mother of three and a 20-plus year pediatrician, board certified, who has called all of her amazing advice and made a series of five-minute videos on everything from feeding and sleeping to safety and all types of parenting issues, which basically every parent out there can use, especially in the middle of the night when you can't reach your pediatrician. So this is like a must do. And she's offering a discount to everyone with code PIP20. PIP20 20 is the code to get 20% off of all of her modules. So definitely go to dr-gen.com and check it out. It's also on a link in my website too, zibbyowens.com. I'm really excited to be here today with Alicia Menendez, who is an MSNBC anchor and leads the Latina to Latina podcast. Previously a co-host of PBS TV's Amanpour & Co., her reporting has appeared on Bustle, ABC News, Fusion TV, PBS, and Vice News. Her book, The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are, is published by Harper Business. A native of Union City, New Jersey, Alicia is a graduate of Harvard College. She lives in New Jersey with her husband and two daughters. So welcome, Alicia. Thanks for coming on Moms No Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. We've already been chatting, so I feel like now we'll let the rest of you into this mm-hmm. little <laughs> conversation. So Alicia's book, The Likeability Trap, How to Break Free and Succeed as You Are. Can you tell everybody what it's about and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, I'm a person who cares a lot about being well-liked. And so originally I wanted to write sort of like an eat, pray, love for likeability where I would do fun things like meditate and go to yoga and somehow release this care I have about what other people think of me. And what I learned talking with other women is that even women who don't give a damn feel that they often pay a price for being so brazenly themselves. And it shifted my focus to ask why that is and what these challenges are that women contend with. And there's a lot of social science research on this. And it's all really interesting because if you've lived it, you're like, I don't need the social science research. I know this from experience, which is women are put in one of two categories. We're either assertive, we ask for what we want and what we need, and then we're punished and told that we're too aggressive. Or we are warm and kind and communal and all of the things that we expect women to be, and then we are punished because we're not seen as leaders in our workplace. So women are in this impossible bind where they can either be the things we expect of a woman or be the things we expect of a leader, but we're told that those two things are mutually exclusive. Interesting. So how have you navigated around this? I don't know that I have. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I think is so funny is that there are a lot of women who, like myself, have been given both sets of feedback that were too much or not enough, which tells you how subjective and context-specific that feedback is. So there are two different pieces. There's the, you want to be a leader at work in a PTA capacity and you keep running up against a wall and there's how to navigate that. And then there's this other piece, which is women like myself who care a lot and examining the cost we pay for internalizing those demands. And I think both pieces are really important because in the first piece, we pay a price in wages, in promotions, in who we see as worthy of power and agency. But in the latter piece, I've lost so much time and energy to thinking about, uh, did, I, did I make my in-laws happy? Did I make my coworker happy? Is everybody okay? And if I could get that time back and harness it into other things, 
I could do a lot with that. But then maybe you would have had to deal with people not being happy and the repercussions of that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and that's play devil's advocate. But I'm I'm with you. I'm like constantly trying to do that. But right. I mean, that's and that's also part of the complication of this conversation, which is I like being a person who's sensitive to other people's feelings. I wish more people were sensitive to other people's feelings. Where I think it becomes a trap or a problem is when that thinking becomes overthinking. Mm-hmm. There was a late Yale professor, Nolan Hoxima, who said that women were suffering from an epidemic of overthinking. Mm. And she has a great book called Women Who Think Too Much, which I highly recommend. You walk around reading because it is a conversation starter because everyone can identify with that. To have looking, it somewhere. I know. I'm looking around because I have no books. the journal that I always have in my purse, which now I can't find. It's like a little light blue thing with a like pen inside, and it says, "Let me overthink this." Yes, the front. that's yes. my journal. That's like me too. Life, yeah. yeah, life mantra. Yeah. So you do care. You're a person who cares. I am. Yeah. I mean, I probably wouldn't be sitting here finding out about other people all day. Right. right you too. I mean, right. we were just talking about your podcast. Right. And, but where does it cross the line for you? I don't know. Where does it cross the line for you? I've been thinking about a lot in the context of work and how very often I will sort of know exactly what I want, but instead of saying, I would like this press release written, here's the title, here's the subtitle, here's what I need in the body of it, I'll be like, you just go for it, you just do it, and then come back to me. The funny boomerang effect of that is that then when I get the product back, I'm like, well, this is all wrong, and then I have to deliver the hard news again saying you put all this time and effort in and now I have to walk it back and we have to do it again. So it, it's not as though I'm constantly succeeding in this effort to be well-liked. I'm simply <laughs> grappling with the tension myself. I was chatting with a friend at a, at a Halloween party actually and she was talking about how she was so desperate to meet everyone's needs and be liked and whatever. And that was why she was afraid of writing something because what if it didn't appeal to everybody. Anyway, I dropped off a copy. I dropped off the galley. Yes, book thank you. I was like, you need to read this book. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, as I get older, I'm really trying to work on a very simple phrase, which is that doesn't work for me. And I mean that in a social capacity where it's like so often people extend invitations and it just, I'm very introverted. I would like love to spend most of my time on a couch by myself in my sweatpants. And so it, very often has nothing to do with the other person, just has to do with how I derive energy, the amount of energy it takes me to interact socially. And I have a tendency to over-explain why I can't do things as opposed to just allowing it to be, it just doesn't work for me. I like it. Has it helped? No. (laughs) That's that's the thing, these things, we socialize women and girls to care about, about other people and to think of ourselves in relation to other people. So I'm 36, I'm doing 36 years of undoing. That's not the type of thing you can do overnight. And I think one of the things we've gotten wrong in the conversation about likability is that we act as though you can undo by reading an Instagram mantra. That if I just, you know, there's a Tina Fey quote that seems like it's always being memed, which is like, you do you and you don't care what they think about it. And I keep saving it to my Instagram files, but I'm not learning the lesson right? And so it's like, how do you actually undo that? And part of what I learned talking to other women is you have to find somewhere else to shift your focus and your attention so that at work, something like self-awareness is a thing you have much more control over than whether or not other people like you. Clarity. Are you being very clear with yourself and with others about why certain things are priorities and certain things are not? Those are things you can control. You can't control whether or not other people like you. That's true. 
but I see the disappointment on your face as I no, say that. No, oh my gosh, not at all. I like you. <laughs> thank you. And obviously desperately seeking that validation, so thank you. <laughs> I loved how in your book you called yourself an old soul mm-hmm. because I feel like that's been coming up more and more in people's books or Instagram. Like, and I've always sort of thought of myself as an old soul. I feel like one of my kids is an old soul. And then I was like, we need to start the old souls club. Like this should be a thing. Hashtag old souls. Is there? There probably is. And I'm just like not aware of it. But like, what Because you're you- an old soul. Because <laughs> <laughs> I haven't like taken the time to research it before I tell you the theory I just thought of. But what do you think makes people old souls? Like you think we're born that way? You think it has to do, do you think it goes hand in hand with trying to be likable? You're the one who's the mother of four. Uh, my two are still under the age of three. But I don't get the impression that my three-year-old's an old soul. Like, she just sort of runs at life and embraces life, and there is very little caution. And that may be something entirely different, but there is a part of me that that feels like she's a new soul. Like, everything in the world seems fresh and new to her. And so again, check in with me again when she's a a teen and we'll see if that's still that way. I feel like I am fully aligned for the first time in my life in my mid thirties that in some ways being a kid was really hard for me because I wanted to be a part of adult conversations. And I probably was a lot more mature than other kids in terms of what I was emotionally attuned to and interested in. And I think at least for me, when I was a kid, that meant I've often felt awkward and out of place because I wasn't interested in what other kids were interested in or I I was just so happy sitting in a corner reading a book. And I feel like the older I've gotten, sort of the more I've caught up with my own age, where my 30s have been such a fun time, so much more fun than my 20s, because this is really what I'm primed for. Wait till you get to your 40s. Yes. <laughs> it's even better. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. I was like you. I like would go to slumber parties, and they'd all be watching Halloween or something scary, and I would like take my book, and I would go hang out in the other room <laughs> with the mom, who yes. was like became my yes. best friend. You always know? wanted to be friends with the mom. And that's the thing. Now I'm the mom and I get to be friends with mom and it's not weird anymore. (laughs) Now, actually, I find sometimes I spot, you know, I have a friend who, her older daughter, who's not even the same age as any of my kids. I feel like this connection with this daughter, do you know what I mean? I feel like, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be friends with this girl, even though she's like 14 or something. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Not in a weird way. That sounds weird, but um, no, it doesn't tell who's like ready to be talking to the moms versus the kids. Absolutely. I also thought it was so interesting when you said for women who are naturally warm, those are the women who, when they try to appear the strongest, have the strangest side effect, which makes her less likable. So it's like you don't get credit for the 95% of the time that you're like very warm and nice because the times that you then lose it, it's worse. That's how I'm interpreting this. Yeah, maybe. no, yeah. I mean, that is that is what the research says, which is if you are always warm and communal and then one time you are short with people, it is hard to come back from that. I mean, I think we've all been there, right? You, And it can be totally reasonable and rational and there are, are perfectly legitimate reasons that you have either been short with someone or delivered bad news. And yet we still sort of have that feeling like, okay, well, Tuesday I have to come in with donuts and make this up to everybody. It's hard to come back from that. Where the opposite, to come back from a place of lost competence is actually much easier, right? If you screw up a project on Monday, but then you bring in a new client on Friday, you've reclaimed your competence. It's harder to do that with warmth. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, so should we just try to be rude all the time? No. <laughs> no, that would be terrible. I think 
One of the things that is complicated about this is that we don't have an agreed upon standard of what is reasonable and appropriate in a workplace period. And so it would be very easy to say, well, women should just be allowed to act the way that men are allowed to act. But that's not exactly right either. Most of the advice around navigating these traps has landed in one of two categories. Either there's the, for lack of a better phrase, lean in school of thought, which is that if you do some gender correcting performance, gender jujitsu, smile, <laughs> you know, ask for a raise with your eyes twinkling that you can navigate around this. And then the other option is to just let go and not care. I think there's a third way, which is to really reconsider likability, to examine it in a critical way and to push back on it. There are ways in which you can do that for yourself. So for example, if you were getting feedback, whether it was in a personal capacity or more likely in a professional capacity that you were too assertive, you would ask the person who's giving you that feedback, well, compared to whom? And that that gives the person an opportunity to really consider whether or not they would give that piece of feedback to someone else in the office, specifically whether or not they would give that to a man in the office. And then the other piece of pushback is to ask that person to draw a line for you between how your style impacts your results. In doing that, you have to be open to the possibility that there is a connection between your style and your work product. But it again challenges the person who's giving you that feedback to be really specific about why the style matters. So if I said to you, you know, Zibi, I know you pride yourself on being deliberate, but sometimes that manifests as indecision. And last week, I needed you to make this big decision. You kept putting it off. And that means we were late in getting this thing to the client. Okay, well, that's a thing that you can actually change, work around. If I just say you're really indecisive, well, what do you do with that? So it's about giving better feedback so that people can also receive and implement that feedback in a more direct way. I think, though, as women, that we it is even more powerful when we do that for other people. So that if I'm in an environment where I hear someone say, like, yeah, I just don't think Zibby has what it takes, that I push back and say, well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Why would you say that? That when we hear even a woman called helpful, which I've always thought of as a compliment, at, at a minimum, an innocuous thing that you would say, calling a woman helpful reduces her to a helper capacity, right? When you say she's helpful, I don't know, was she helpful because she got everybody coffee or was she helpful because she crunched all the numbers? So you want to be really specific about what a woman contributes to a project because that helps people understand her value. Hmm. Good right? advice. Yeah, totally. I would have never thought of helpful as a problematic. Now word. every word can have. Yes. <laughs> Have meaning. Nothing is safe. Do you mind sharing a little about your sort of career journey and how you got to this place? I know you had political aspirations and then you pivoted and now you do a lot of TV and yeah. podcasts. And te- so give me a little sure. background if you don't mind. I grew up in New Jersey. My father's an elected official. When I was growing up, he was the mayor of our small town, Union City. By the time I was in about third grade, he'd been elected to Congress. He's now a U.S. Senator from New Jersey. And my mother is a public school teacher. So I grew up in this house that was defined by service and where all professional endeavors were service-based. And so I naturally imagined that that was the path I would take. 
I did not imagine a secondary path. I was very judgy about people who were eight years old and didn't know what they wanted to do, back to the point of being an old soul. And then I got my butt kicked because I graduated from college. I had taken the LSATs. I thought that I was going to go to law school. And I worked on a campaign and realized how much power there was in the media, how often they got the opportunity to really set the agenda and decide what we were going to be talking about for the day. And it had never occurred to me that there was more than one way to be of service. So I got myself a job at RNN TV, which was this must-carry station in Westchester, and I did a reverse commute from the city. I was a booker. I would find people to be a guest on their nightly talk show, and I learned everything I wanted to learn about television by sitting in that newsroom and just absorbing it. In that job, I was given the opportunity to do a bit of on-air reporting I loved it. It answered for me a lingering question, which is whether or not I had what it took to do that. I went back in and out of working in nonprofits. I worked at Rock the Vote. I worked at Democracia USA, which was this organization that did Hispanic voter registration and engagement. And in doing all of that, I was doing on-air analysis as you know a young person or as a person who was um, doing work in the Latino community. And... I caught the attention of some people in talent departments. Eventually, one of those women went to the Huffington Post, launched HuffPost Live, which was the streaming network there, hired me there. I then went to Fusion, which was the ABC Univision cable station aimed at Latino millennials. I moved to Miami to do that. And... Then I worked for a year at PBS on Christiana and Porsche, where we did long-form interviews, which is my favorite format to do. And now I'm going to start a job at MSNBC as an anchor on the weekends. Wow. Yes. It's just so to validate why my mother has MSNBC on 24-7. <laughs> now she'll get to see me as a part of that. And yet earlier you said you'd prefer to be curled up on your couch and you're an introvert, but yet the career you've chosen is... I would argue, right, is very extrovert, very people-facing. and right. I'm right on the cusp. Like when you do an analysis, I don't know uh-huh. if you've ever I've, taken yes, one I have, of those. Of course, or it's yes. like I'm a cusper. I'm yeah. lean introvert. I like people, and I like talking to people. It's, it's the socializing piece mm-hmm. that I sometimes find to be more, to demand more of me than I have to give. That doesn't work for you. <laughs> sometimes it does. I mean, yeah, I think, no, but it's... It's a funky thing, which I think sometimes we think of introversion as being shy. And I am shy in a, like, if if I were at your apartment and you were having a cocktail party, I would sort of cling to the wall waiting for someone to introduce themselves to me or for you to, like, I that, that act of going up to someone and saying, hi, I'm Alicia, and let me tell you about myself. Yeah. Oh, That's hard. That's really hard. It's really hard. There are yeah. people who are so gifted at it, and you yeah. watch them do it, and it's so effortless and incredible. And in my next life, I would like to come back as that person, but that is not me. And media has been a great way to meet people, to tell stories, to be interactive. And I think of it as a form of service. And then when did you start writing the book, come up with the idea for the book? And when along the journey did you also start the podcast and tell everybody Mm -hmm. the name of the podcast and all the rest? Sure. The book I contemplated for years and my agent gave me a great piece of advice, which is like, you have to love what you're writing about. You have to be obsessed with it because you're going to spend so much time with this topic that if you're lukewarm on it, you're never going to finish it. And it took me a long time to really refine what that 
was. And then it took me about two years to really write it. And part of that is that, as I mentioned, the book that I imagined I was going to write ended up being very different. So when you write a book, a nonfiction book, you write these 40-page proposals and they have sort of proposed table of contents. It can be your blueprint for the book. Well, my blueprint for the book that I had proposed sort of went in the trash and I had to start all over again. And it was a lot of me feeling my way through it. And a lot of dealing with imposter syndrome because I'm not an HR professional. I'm not a management consultant. I'm not a social scientist. So there was a bit of like, well, what business do I have writing this book? But I think it then became a better book because it came from the experience of actually being a woman who strives to lead and finding that so incredibly challenging and connecting with other women about why that was so incredibly challenging. So some of my favorite parts of the book are where I talk to women who you you would see from afar and be like, well, she's nailing it. Like she's totally, she is ascendant in her career, ascendant in her life. But then when you really sit down and talk with her, she's like, I'm so lost because she's doing a very convincing performance of leadership, but she's not being given permission to show up exactly as she is. And that performance can be really exhausting. Anybody who is showing up in the world as anything other than their complete authentic self knows that. That's like part of your chapter on bringing your whole self to work Mm -hmm. and how important it is to Mm -hmm. not just have a persona, but really do it. Like, the more you can bring your whole self, the better it is. Do you feel like there are capacities in which you get to be your whole self? I feel like doing this podcast, honestly, this new phase of my life, and I'm, you know, I started this, what, last year when I was 40, well, I'm 43 now, but I started when I was 41, it was before my birthday. And now I feel like this is great. I get to do everything I love to do. I get to read, I get to chat with people, I get to learn about people. I love learning about people and hearing stories and sharing stories and connecting. Anyway, I feel like this is the first time, but I went through the same thing and I don't want to make this about me. But No, I want to make um, it about you. No, no, th- no, not. <laughs> but, you know, I lost my best friend on 9-11, which I mentioned frequently, but I was at business school at that time. And that summer I worked at an ad agency helping market Pepperidge Farm cookies, something that should have been really fun. But I was like, my friend just died sitting at her desk. Like if I'm going to die sitting at my desk, I have to be at my desk bringing my whole self to what I'm doing. I can't just market cookies. And I, I left. I mean, I finished the summer and whatever else, but it's hard. I mean, it's hard to find exactly the right thing and cross all right. the boxes and whatever. I mean, do you feel like you're bringing your whole self now in what you're doing? In some ways, yes. Because I think part of what you're talking about is purpose and feeling aligned in the purpose of what you're doing and the work that you get paid to do. But there are elements that I still find really complicated, like being a mom and working in the sense that it's always, I think before I had kids, I imagined that it was just hard. I mean, this speaks to how much of a, I like work that you'd be like, you really wanted to be at work, but those kids were like pulling you back from work as opposed to being like, no, I really want to be with my children. I love my time with my children and I love my work. And I don't know how those two things can be true at the same time and how I wish I could split myself in two and always be fully with my children and fully at work because I love both. And so for example, on 
Monday, I was doing some television to launch the book, which is should be this very exciting, super like thing I've been looking forward to. And the three-year-old the night before had been a little sick. And so she's supposed to start a new school on Monday. And we're like, okay, well, this is good. We won't, we won't take her to school on Monday. I'll go do my television thing. That way I don't have to miss the first day of school. And I can do this thing. And she wakes up in the morning. She's like, I'm ready to go to my new school. <laughs> and so we scramble to get lunch together. We scramble to get her bag together. I'm trying to put myself together. The two-month-old wants to nurse. And it's just like, it's messy and sloppy in ways that I never could have anticipated until I was in, like I jumped in the car with wet hair and hoped that someone would be able to blow dry it before I went on national television because that's the way these things work. But then you show up in the professional capacity, and you don't want everyone to know that you're a mess, right? Because that you, you're you aware that there's a price for being a person who is anything other than fully present and invested in your work. And that can be true for men and for women, but there is a unique penalty that women pay, which is that people perceive us not just as having less time, but being less competent, that somehow becoming a mother has made us so warm and so focused on the home that we can no longer be this strong, assertive person. And as you know, as the mother of four, is that as much as motherhood dials up your warmth, it dials up your strength. You're never stronger than when you are advocating on behalf of your children, right? I mean, I have to, are you a better advocate for your children than you are for yourself? Oh, 100%. Right. Yes. You have to be. You have to be. And it shows you that you have what it takes to be that advocate. You've just not done it in the service of yourself. Hmm. I feel like we're having a little therapy thing here. I mean, it's going to be my second book. (laughs) (laughs) If I ever put myself through the process of doing this again. All right, do you think you're going to do another book? Oh, my goodness. Somewhere my husband's yelling like, no, please don't. (laughs) Like, this this was hard. It was hard. I think I thought that because I've written a thousand word pieces before that I would crank out 60 to 80 of those and that would be a book. But the actual act of having something to say that can sustain a reader over the course of 250, 300 pages is an entirely different act. So you're done. I don't I mean, tapping that, out. But then I'm going to be here in like three years sitting down with you and be like, I thought you were done, Elise. There's no way you're done. <laughs> you're so, and also, I mean, not to say you're so young. I'm not like that much older than you. But life is long. I mean, a lot of, I, well, God willing. I mean, there's a lot that could come. But the challenge, obviously, is... Formidable. So instead of putting another book on your to-do list for the Thank near you. future, can you talk about the new show or other yeah, things in I, the shorter time that I, are coming up? I don't know much about it. Sort of as a adventure that is waiting to happen. I can tell you about the podcast. I started this podcast two years ago. It's called Latina to Latina. I interview professional Latinas about their journeys. And what's interesting to me, and I'm sure to you as well, is I've been on television for ten years podcasting is where I've built the most intimate connection with my audience. It's where I'll get DMs from listeners or emails and people will share parts of their lives. And that's why I always love doing this is because I did love that sense of connection and community. And it's been so fun to carve out that space. And, you know, as a community, Latinos very often, you know, there's a, there's an expression that someone at Goya uses, which is we're a people connected by language and divided by beans. Like there, <laughs> there, there are all of these, you know, big cultural differences depending on your country of origin. But what's edifying about the podcast is there are also all these through lines. Like 
family is very important to us as a community, ethos of hard work. And at a moment when the community can really feel under siege, it is nice to have this place where we get to celebrate Latina excellence. Excellent. Do you have any parting advice to aspiring authors? I know you sounded a little discouraging there. But no, for no, 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 no. Uh, you, you should, everyone else should write a book. It's me who should not. I think the piece of advice that I was given, which is you have to absolutely love it and want it and feel as though it is a subject that you want to sit with for a very long time. And that I think takes some soul searching and some, you know, coming back to revision because I'm interested in lots of things for about a week and a half. <laughs> and, then, and then that moment passes. But since you're asking me, do you have any advice on child rearing? Because oh my gosh. the fact that you have survived for I mean. makes me <laughs> much call, harder call me job. <laughs> I think having people you can call, honestly, I mean, I'm sure you have a million people, but the people that I could text or call or whatever and late at night and be like, what should I do about this? Or some of the things that got me through. So anyway, if I can help you at all. I'll take <laughs> you up on advice. that. That's my advice. It's just in the moment. Last question. Yeah. To the mom, woman, professional out there who feels hamstringed by how much they want to be liked and feel that it's getting in their way, what would you say to her? A few things. You cannot control whether or not other people like you. I've said that to myself maybe a thousand times in the course of writing this book. I'm not sure that I've internalized it quite yet, but it is the fundamental truth, which is you can be your best, most wonderful self, or you can do a complete performance of yourself. How someone else will interpret and receive that is entirely outside of your control. So in many ways, focusing on likability becomes an act of seeding control. And... As someone who cares about it, I always thought of it as a me issue. If I could just be a little bit more of this or a little more of that. And it was really helpful to start thinking of it as a systems issue, to be like, this is set up so that there's almost no way for me to be a warm and strong and perfect and authentic leader. And then by focusing on work and by focusing on how difficult it is for women to face these challenges at work. It freed me up to think about the rest of my life and who I wanted in it and how to surround myself with people who really allowed me to be my most authentic self. What I think is funny is like we can talk around that, but you know it, you know it in your core, like who you spend time with. And then you walk away and you feel so nourished and so much like you got a chance to just downshift and relax and be yourself and you walked away with a million ideas or thoughts or feelings and shifting my energy towards really investing in those relationships and friendships has made a fundamental difference in my life and I would recommend the same to anybody else. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank for you. On this Moms was so Country Books. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. Today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books was sponsored by Pediatrician in Your Pocket by Dr. Jennifer Trachtenberg, dr-gen.com. Enter code PIP20, PIP20, for 20% off of these can't-miss modules that will make your parenting life so much easier. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 